the Missional Life Podcast, inspiring kingdom-minded believers around the world to live the mission of God in their lives. All right, welcome back to Missional Life Podcast. Today we have Dr. Tim Chafee on the show. Dr. Tim is an apologist, author of over two dozen books and articles, as well as the content manager with Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum. Dr. Tim, welcome to the show. Welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. Great to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Let's just jump right into it. I think some Christians today can be a little intimidated in making a stand for creationism against evolutionary theory. For you personally, what are some of the top scientific evidences in support of creationism? Yeah, well, I don't, I don't think it's anything that Christians should be nervous about because the science is really on our side. I mean, you, the more and more we learn about the complexity of life and uh, just about every discipline, it, it is very obvious that it aligns with scripture. For example, in biology, you know, we learn that, so you got the law of biogenesis, life only comes from life. So it does not come from non-living material. And yet for like a naturalistic evolutionary view, you have to have life come from non-life, intelligence come from non-intelligence, information from non-information. We've never observed any of those things ever happen. All we've ever observed is life from life, information from information, intelligence from intelligence. The Bible tells us all three of those is what happened, that God created us with an ability to understand the world he, he, and he, the world that he had made. And so just from that alone, we know that there is a creator. You look at the complexity of the, the DNA molecule and just the, uh, we, we have an exhibit at the Creation Museum going into detail about the development of human life in the womb. And it's a, it's a celebration of being made in God's image. And all of the, I, I hesitate to use the word miraculous just because it happens every day as babies are developing in mom's womb, but the, the, so, so many miracles, so many things that happen have to happen exactly right at the right time in both mom and baby or no more humans. There's no way any of that can be explained by chance processes. We obviously were created by an all powerful creator. And when we look at what he's done, we can see that he's, he matches the God of scripture. Amazing. When you think about it scientifically, so many people argue against including creationism in schools, and yet it seems so clear and obvious to some of us that believe in creationism. What are some of the things that are holding back creationism from being pushed into schools and being taught right along the side of evolutionary theory? Yeah, so from a strictly secular perspective, it looks like you're pushing religion by doing that rather than just, you know, what I just described before that is not a a religious statement to say that information from information, intelligence from intelligence. So in one sense, you could easily argue an intelligent design approach. This is not, it's not religious in nature. It's just, it's obvious when we look at the world that, that a creation has to have a creator or a building needs a builder. So that, that seems pretty intuitive, but uh, so from the vantage point of, of certain individuals, you would be pushing religion. You're supposed to have this so-called separation of church and state. Uh, we have a different approach to it here at Answers in Genesis. We've never advocated that public schools should be teaching creation. Um, we're not opposed to the idea, but uh, we've never advocated for that. And the reason is we, you'd have a bunch of people who are who don't know the position, who don't really understand what we teach, doing it in a way that would not be appropriate or would not be accurate. And so in, in one sense, they would be misinforming people more than they would if they just ignore it. So that's never 
been a big push of our ministry at all, or an official position of our ministry, even though we're accused of like, we're trying to get creationism in schools. And that's not really what we want. We want, we want to see creationism in, in churches first, because there are too many churches that won't take a stand on what uh, the Bible says in Genesis. And so we want them to say, you know, God's word is true from the very beginning to the very end. And, and that means that yes, Adam was made from the dust of the ground from an ape man or ape woman. Um, and that he made everything just like he said he did uh, just thousands of years ago, not billions. That's really interesting. He brought that up actually, because, you know, there's so much of this old earth theory versus new earth theory. And so can you explain some what that actually is for the listener that doesn't know? And then can you give us some of the different kind of scientific evidence that you lean on in kind of believing in new earth theory? Yeah. So the, the two views generally, we, it's referred to as like young earth creationism or biblical creationism. And then the other view would be old earth creationism, which essentially says that earth is 4.5 or 4.6 billion years old, the universe 13 or 14 billion years old. And God just made it over the, uh, made everything over a long period of time. Generally speaking, old earth creationists aren't into biological evolution. You know, they, they don't usually buy into the idea that Adam was from a woman, although that's changing quite, a bit, especially, you know, like William Lane Craig's book came out a couple of years ago, pushing that you've had several other evangelicals in the last five or 10 years advocating that evolution of man. But prior to that, most of them would say we need to have, figure out how the billions of years can be put into the Bible some way to harmonize those two, uh, but don't do biological evolution, but that's shifting. So that, that's old earth creationism. Young earth creationism would be more of a straightforward, plain reading of the text. So the genealogies in Genesis 5 that take you from Adam to Noah are, you know, literally that meant to be read literally. Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. Seth was 105 when his son was born. And when you add up those dates and those figures, you, you just get like 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 from Abraham to Jesus. And since Jesus, about 2,000 years. So we're about 6,000 years since the creation. So that, that would be the difference between the two. But one other thing that comes with that would be what happened in Genesis 7 and 8. The Bible tells us there was a worldwide flood in Noah's day, that God sent that as a judgment on this earth. But in order to hold to the old earth view, if you want the 4.5 billion year old earth, you can't have a worldwide flood because it would rip up all, all those rock layers that are out there, like you see in the Grand Canyon that are full of fossils. The old earth creationist believes that is a result of billions of years of slow and gradual processes. But if you have a worldwide flood, that would wipe out all those layers and lay down new ones. So they'd no longer have their evidence for the billions of years. So they have to reinterpret Genesis seven and eight to be something like a local flood, regional flood, or there were some people in the 1800s who even proposed like a, a worldwide flood that left no evidence. So it's called the tranquil flood theory. And it's really bizarre because water leaves a lot of evidence. It's extremely powerful. So that's one of the reasons why not too many people hold that view. But yeah, most of them will just say it's only meant to be a regional flood. It's not global. And you asked about what scientific evidence. I would point right to that. The fact that we find these sedimentary layers all around the globe. So down in the Grand Canyon, you have a certain layer of sandstone that you also find in northern Wisconsin, uh, which is where I'm from. You also find it in Israel and you also find it in Africa. So one layer of, of rock laid down at the same time as on all of, in all of those places. How do you get that with a local flood? You can't. The only way to explain that is that a flood that covered at least three continents. And by that point, you're looking at a worldwide flood. And it's not just that one layer. There are so many other things like that that match the worldwide flood. In fact, I've argued 
in our in the Ark Encounter, we have an exhibit called Flood Geology. And I argued there that if the Bible never said worldwide flood, every single geology textbook in the world would say worldwide flood. But because it says it, they don't put it in there. They, they don't accept the one. Wow. So what about scientists that are, don't believe in creationism? They would argue about carbon dating and all sorts of different things and the fo- kind of the fossil records that would say, wow, the world is indeed billions and billions of years old. How, how can we defend the creationist argument against something like that? Sure. And I'm glad you used carbon dating because so many people will use that example and they'll say, oh, carbon dating proves billions of years. No, it doesn't. A carbon dating, radiocarbon dating had nothing to do with billions or even millions of years. In fact, they, the longest that people argue that you can actually use carbon dating for would be up to about 100,000 years. Some people say maybe 250,000 years, just because of the relatively short half-life of the of radioactive carbon-14. So after, you know, just a few half-lives as, as it breaks down, pretty soon it's going to be undetectable. So they need something that has a much longer half-life. Uh, so they'll use things like uranium to lead or some of these other isotopes that break down over a much longer period. So if somebody says carbon-14 proves millions of years, they don't, they really don't know what they're talking about. If they, if they're, if they say radiometric dating, then that's where at least they're using the right terminology. Every one of the dating methods has huge assumptions built into it. They're assuming they know the, how much of the, what's called the parent element, how much, you know, what it what it begins with and then what it breaks down into. So the parent element versus the daughter element. They assume they know how much or what the ratio was when it started. They assume that the decay rate has always stayed the same, which might be a, a relatively safe assumption, even though we know that that can change, but for the most part, they're pretty constant. The But the other thing, and the, the big one is they're assuming there's no contamination. So if you think about the way that a fossil is made, an animal dies and if, if it gets buried rapidly by mud or certain sediments, then there's a chance that it's going to be fossilized over the next several hundred years or so. Depending on the conditions, it doesn't even take that long. But what happens is as water carries, as the creature starts to break down, water is carrying minerals in down into that that carcass and replacing the material with, with rock. So it actually becomes a, a solid rock in a sense. That's what that fossil is. The whole time it's being contaminated. As water is bringing things through it, it's constantly being contaminated. So to think that there's no contamination is is really special pleading. So when we do testing with these sorts of methods, like at Mount St. Helens, we know when that erupted. We know it was in May of 1980, uh, so 43 years ago. And some of the the volcanic material that's there is 43 years old. You do testing on it, and it dates to 2.8 million years. Wow. Well, it shows us that that's not accurate. So when we know the age of something, it turns out that it's not accurate. But when we don't know the age of something, suddenly we're supposed to trust. And I would say, no, there's too many assumptions going into that. And so creations don't need to, to fear that either. We, we have answers as to why those things are off. And, um, and we have examples where, where they clearly are wrong. Now, you know, just going back a little bit, you mentioned um, when we were talking about creationism versus evolutionary theories taught in schools, you mentioned we'd first like to get churches on board with this correct biblical teaching. So how is Answers in Genesis strategically going about that? And what positive responses have you seen? What pushback have you seen 
and how can churches get involved with Answers in Genesis materials? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, we we have outreach in a lot of different ways. We've, of course, we've got the attractions that we've mentioned already, Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. So we have churches who are bringing bus groups and, and band groups and everything to the two attractions, which, you know, we, we appreciate that. And that's a great way to get people involved. But we also have developed curriculum over the years. We've got what we call Answered Bible Curriculum that was written at, I think it's five different age levels. So you'd have like the K, I don't know if it's the exact breakdown, but like K through three, four through six, seventh through nine, maybe, and then high school and also adult. And they all cover in three years, you go through the entire Bible and everybody is learning the same material at the same time, but just at a different age level. So if you're a family attending a church that uses this curriculum, the adult Sunday school is going through the same thing that the, the youngest Sunday school is going through. And if they're in that program for three years, they would walk through the entire Bible and learned apologetics along the way. And so that was, that's one thing that we've done. We've had a very popular VBS program, uh, over the last, I think we've been doing it for about 11 or 12 years now. I'm, that's not my department, but I've been in churches where they use it. And, uh, that, that's been exciting to see. So we, we've been developing in the last year or two, we've had a bigger push for, to do more and more curriculum and to, to do different textbooks. So that's, those are other ways that, uh, we can. We can influence the church and, and homeschool families or even uh, Christian schools. And yeah, we, we run um, conferences every year too. So in October, it's just two months away, we'll have a pastor's conference that we've been doing every year for, that's got to go back at least to 2010 or before that. So um, that, you know, we really want to reach the leadership and uh, we, we've offered tours of different places like Grand Canyon to different scholars and everything. So there's, there's all sorts of things that the ministry has done to try to reach the Christian community, to try to reach the church. And it's, I think a lot of people are still intimidated because some of the issues we talked about, they think, oh, it's science. I'm not a scientist. And it's, well, it's really not so much about science as it is just taking God at his word and then just looking around and, and understanding some basic principles. And you'll see that God's word has always been vindicated and shown to be right. No, and I really appreciate that response because, you know, it empowers the average person who hasn't studied those things in depth to have the confidence by learning this information and that it doesn't have to be so complicated. I mean, there's so much to be studied, but that there's no need to be fearful. I think for such a long time, there's kind of been an underlying like bullying tactic, if you will, mm -hmm. by, by evolutionary theorists and, you know, people in that category, but, you know, just empowering the believers to say, Hey, actually, this is what these things are showing. So thank you for that. Yeah. We did a study several years ago. Ken Ham did a, a book called already compromised. And it was, it was about a survey that was sent to 200 different Christian school, Christian colleges, Bible colleges, seminaries, and they sent surveys to like the president, vice president, head of the science department, head of the Bible department. And they asked a series of questions about the age of the earth, about Genesis one through 11, about the flood. And what was really, I don't know if it was too surprising. I think it would be surprising for most people. The science departments by and large were young earth. The Bible departments by and large were older because they were the ones telling people, oh, the science has proven that the earth is billions of years old. So we got to figure out a way to sit. And all the scientists were saying, no, they haven't. And they were saying, no, it lines up fine with a young earth. So you don't have to, you don't have to 
try to seek a way to harmonize that because science doesn't teach billions of years. There are scientists saying that, and the majority of scientists believe that it's been, it's largely due to the philosophy that they've been trained. And so they've been, well, the way we talk about it here, and this is, will be helpful, helpful for a lot of people. Creationist evolutionists look at the same facts. We look at the same planet, the same stars, the same trees, the same fossils, the same rock. We study the same things and we reach different conclusions because we have different starting points. So it's like a set of glasses that you put on. And one of them from the evolutionary point of view, you, before you even look at the data, you're thinking billions of years, slow and gradual processes, and you're trying to, to make the, the data fit that storyline. And then we look at it and say, in our mind, it's like God's word is our filter. So we're looking through the pages of scripture in a sense to, can we explain what we're seeing in light of scripture? And what we find is that, yeah, every time you can. So it, it's not so much a science versus faith issue. Like so many people think it's worldview about the past, present, future versus worldview about the past, present, future. Uh, one begins with God's word and one begins with man's ideas about the past. And so. We're going to rely on God's word, the, the word of the one who knows everything, who has always been, who made everything and who told us what he did and who cannot lie. So we're going to start there. I love that. We start with God's word and then we, to use your word, filter everything through God's word. I think that's just, you know, sometimes we feel like we've gotten away from that. Sometimes as, as Christians, it feels like sometimes we start with God's word, but, you know, maybe we add some of this other stuff in. And all of a sudden, you know, it gets really confusing. So you mentioned okay. a little bit earlier about the flood and kind of just different, whether it's a regional flood or a worldwide flood. And I know you've written kind of a trilogy called the Remnant Trilogy, which is a historical series that highlights the reality of Noah, the ark and the flood. And so I just want to know a little bit more kind of from your personal life, like what motivated you to, to write that series and what were some of the biggest revelations that you had researching for that writing? Yeah, that's, an, that's a good question. There's a lot there. So I'm as the content manager for the Ark Encounter, I was responsible for writing all the signs or my assistant and I wrote all the signs that you read when you go through the Ark, all the different exhibits. He kind of handled most things animal related and I did the rest of things. Not on our own. I mean, we have experts here. So the, the geology exhibit I mentioned earlier, I was talking with our geologists on a regular basis to make sure I was getting things right. So we have experts that I would consult in various areas. But my, my boss at the time wanted us to have an exhibit called Who is Noah? And he, what he wanted me to do is come up with like a backstory for Noah, how he had developed the skills that he obviously had. So it's going to be fictional backstory based on the very few pieces of information we have about Noah in the Bible before the flood. And how could he have had the skills to, to build this massive ship and to lead a crew of people who, you know, all the different things he obviously had to do. And so I got this idea that, you know what, maybe... Noah was already a shipbuilder. I mean, you think of the, the way that God works in our lives today. So many times, you know, I can look back on my life and see how God had been preparing me over the years to do what I do now, long before I knew what I was going to do. He knew, and he was preparing me for that. And so many people have that same sort of testimony. So why couldn't the same thing be true for Noah? So that when God says, Noah, build this ark, he said, I can do it. How big? Okay. That's going to be really big and take a while, but why would he call somebody who has no idea what he's doing to build the most important ship of all time? Why seems to make sense based on the way that God normally does things, that he would prepare and equip Noah to do what he had done. And so when I got that 
idea, I started coming up with this little storyline for the exhibit and several people approached me and said, you know, it's interesting. I haven't thought about it that way before. You should do a, a, Noah, a series about Noah or a novel about Noah. I thought, I don't know. I don't, that's daunting because someday I'm going to meet him. <laughs> I don't want him to get upset with what I've done. And I'd, you know, maybe he'll walk up to me and slap me or something. And, um, and then I thought, well, if there's a way I can do it that will continually point people back to the Bible, which sounds a little weird, use fiction to teach the truth then I'll do it. And so I, I figured out a couple of ways to do that. And I included about 25 to 30 pages of nonfiction at the end of each book, dealing with questions that people have about the pre-flood world, about Noah, about the ark, about the animals, that sort of thing. And they essentially became like the, the official backstory for Noah and his family at the ark encounter. And so as people go through the ark, if they see a few things where they're thinking, well, I don't remember that in the Bible, like the names of the women or certain skills that they had that we assigned to them. Yeah. If it's not right from the Bible, it's right from that series so that we have one consistent message all the way throughout. And so it's it a lot of fun to think through those things and to try to wrap your mind around how much could Noah know about God and about what happened in the first six chapters of the Bible. I mean, because he didn't have the Bible there in front of him like we have. So anything from Genesis seven onward, I can't use in terms of this is what Noah knows. And so trying to think through that, one other one that might be interesting for your listeners um, that kind of occurred to me as I was working through it. Did you realize that Cain, Adam and Eve's first son, is probably about a year younger than his parents? Okay. <laughs> because they, they've been created fully grown and they were married on day six, you know, for their first day, which was day six. And God told them to be fruitful and multiply. It's probably not going to take very long before she becomes pregnant, but it, it's after they're out of the garden. And within that, probably within that first year, Cain is born. So he's, even though he looks a lot younger, he's only a, about a year younger than his parents, probably. So that's a, kind of a weird thought to have, but it's just, just one of those things that occurs to you as you look at Genesis one through six, every day of your life for about five years. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Very interesting point. So you've researched the Ark and I, I want to pivot towards the Ark encounter there in, in Northern Kentucky, but in your research, where is the Ark today? Is the Ark still around? I don't think that it is. I know there are a lot of people who are convinced that it, that part of it, you know, fragments of it, or, or maybe the whole thing is somewhere on Mount Ararat. Um, it's a wooden building, wooden construction. If you drive by an old farmhouse, maybe it was built a hundred years ago, the barn, there's caving in and crumbling. If it's 150 years, maybe 200 years, nothing left of the foundation. You know, wood doesn't do a great job out in the elements. Um, yeah, the ark would have been thicker probably than what you see for, definitely than what you see for like barn siding or something, but still over 4,000 plus years out in the elements, I don't think the ark's going to be doing real well. Some people think, you know, on Mount Ararat, they think, well, there's ice up there. It could be trapped in a glacier, but those glaciers move. And so it would rip it to shreds. So if you were able to find wood in the ice, it would just be maybe some planks or something. But uh, we don't even believe that it's on Mount Ararat. The Bible says that the ark landed on Mount, the mountains, plural, mountains of Ararat. So somewhere in that region. Mount Ararat is a, is a volcano that has erupted multiple times since the time of the flood. Our geologist, Andrew Selling, says that it's sitting on top of flood layers. So these layers that were laid down during the flood then Ararat came up. So he said, he would say that it came up too late in the flood or after the flood for it to even be the mountain that the ark landed on. So all the people going there and doing ex expeditions on Mount Ararat, a 
he would say they're not even in the right spot. But I just, I just have a hard time believing that it would still be around 4,000 plus years later. I, I hope it is. It would be fantastic if somebody finds it. I've, I've got no problem with that. Of course, it still wouldn't be enough to convince the hardened skeptic. They would come up with some explanation like oh, just Christians put it up there to try to trick people or, or whatever it might be. But in the meantime, if, until we find it, if we ever do, which I, like I said, I don't think we will, people can come to the one in Kentucky and get a good feel for what it would like. That's awesome. That's exactly what I was going to say. So there is still pretty much one in Kentucky. And yep. so tell us a little bit about that. When did they build it? And what were some of the thoughts behind building it? And were there any kind of compl complications in building such a thing? That obviously, they use scripture as the format and the template to build it. Kind of, can you tell us some of the history behind it? Yeah. The, so there are a lot of challenges. We we publicly announced the idea of building the Ark Encounter, not just the, the Ark itself, but the entire um, park that's there with the other attractions. We had announced that back in December of 2010, but it's something that our, some of our team had been working on for a few years in terms of design and concept and everything. So from December 2010 until about March of 2014, we were doing the fundraising and we had enough at that point, I think it was in March of 2014 to, for the green light to say, go, we're building this. Let's start clearing the land. Let's, let's build it. So we had 20, essentially 26 months to build the ark and all the exhibits and with a really pretty small team. And it was a, a very, very crazy 26 months. I, was, I think we start, we broke around in May of 2014, early May. And so just over 26 months of build time. And it was, it, it was very special. It was a, a neat thing to be a part of. It was, uh, I loved being on the team that I'm on to, to work with the people who are making all the incredible exhibits and you know, I have, I have zero artistic ability, like none at all, probably negative artistic ability, but I work next to people who are incredibly talented. If you go through the arc and you see all the sculptures of the animals and everything, people I sit next to made those. And, um, if you go through the creation museum with the fearfully and wonderfully made exhibit with all the little tiny baby models that look so realistic, they, they just made those. And I'm just blown away by the, the skill that uh, God has given people that I work with and. I, I get to do what I love. I get to research and write and teach. And that's, that's what I love doing. And uh, so every day I, I tell people I never have a Monday. Like today is Monday, but I never get up like, oh, I got to go to work. I, I get to come work with people I love working with and do what I love doing. And I, people think I'm joking when I say I'm living the dream, but no, that's what I'm doing. And it's such a, I'm, I'm very blessed to to do what I do and to be able to serve the Lord in this way. It's just, yeah, I wouldn't want anything different. It's amazing. He's been very good to me. So cool to hear. When you personally walk through the ARC exhibit, is there a certain exhibit that kind of just pulls your attention? Like you would recommend a person to go to, you know, your top one or two? So good question. I'll, I'll give you a few of them for different reasons. Uh, one that I, I like to take people through and part of the tour is the pre-flood world exhibit. And part of that is because there's this really large diorama that kind of looks like a, what you picture to be like a Coliseum. And we've got this dinosaur coming outside well, on the other side of the, um, of the diorama, there's a large person, you know, the Bible says there are giants on the earth and pre-flood there's a giant who's got this big spear in his head. Well, I'm the model. And so, so it, I tell people that I ask if he looks familiar and they're like, that's you, isn't it? Yeah, that's me. So, so I'm in one of the exhibits that way. And it's kind of fun. Obviously that's not the most important thing. It's kind of a fun. One, the, the flood geology one, I'm very, I think it's the one I'm most proud of. And the reason I say that is because I, 
I don't know a lot about geology. I'm learning more and more, but to me, they're rocks. I can tell you the color and that they're hard. That's a, that's a part of my knowledge of rock. But I had to figure out a way to make that make sense to the average person. And so I've met with our geologist, Andrew Snelling, several times. I had even asked him one time, would you write this and that I can kind of dumb it down? And he said, no, you have to figure out a way to do it so that it makes sense to you. Because if you if you get it, since you don't know geology, then other people will get it. That's good advice. They're great advice. And, and it works. I, th I think we figured out a way to do it that makes really good sense for pe people who know nothing about geology can go through there and get what we're saying and see the two different worldviews, the biblical worldview versus the naturalistic evolutionary world and see how what, what Bible tells us make perfect sense of what we see in the world. And the, the other view cannot explain a lot of the details we see. Um, so I'm probably most proud of that one. The, I, I think I'd make sure to take them through the last, which we call why the, can we trust the Bible? And it's this graphic, it's like walking through the pages of a graphic novel, but there you have these three college students. One of them is defending his faith and witnessing to his friends. And so you get a clear presentation of the gospel. And there's certain details in my own life that are kind of worked into that in some way that kind of special for me. So I, I really like that one. You know, we visited there before and a couple of things that kind of stood out to me. And I just wondered if you could kind of explain for some of our listeners, because there's a lot of questions. You know, when we think about the ark, we think about animals and, you know, how long they were on it and the family and all sorts of things. You know, there's still some different questions. And I feel like at least the ark exhibit makes some really great suggestions or proposals on how they did things. And so a couple of them are fresh water for them. What do you do with the animal waste and what do you do with carnivores? Can you tell us a little bit more about how the ark exhibit answers some of those questions? Sure. So the first one with water, the way that we set it up, the calculations we ran and as far as the amount of space needed, we figured out how many animals needed to be on board the ark, how much water they would need, how much people would need for not just drinking, but also cleaning the stalls and all that kind of thing, bathing for the humans. And then we decided to take three months of potable water on board the ark and then set up a system where they could collect rainwater from the roof of the ark. So if the ark was the size that we built with that roof, you would need one inch of rain per week in order to keep those cisterns full. I'm pretty sure during the flood, they had more than one inch of rain per week. <laughs> so that doesn't seem like a, much of an issue. In fact, here in Kentucky, that's what we average. We get about 50 to 55 inches of rainfall uh, every year. So about an inch of rain per week is what we see on average. So as long as they had that much rain, they could keep those cisterns full and have enough water. How would they get rid of the waste? So we have a video that shows a one potential mechanism would be to dump it into what's called a, a moon pool. If you think of some diving vessels where people actually have an open bottom, which sounds really weird in a, in a boat to have this well in the bottom because that would, wouldn't that let the water up? As long as the sides of the well are higher than what the, the sea level is going to be, where the water line is going to be on the outside of the ship, it's not actually going to go up and sink the ship. So you could just dump it out in the middle of the ship, in a sense, right into that hole. So that's one possibility. Of course, there could have been something like, you know, a big doggy door at the end of the back end of the ark. Yeah. You're just kind of scooping the stuff out. So there's different ways to to handle that. But let's see. So that's two of the questions. What was the third? I think carnivores and just general oh, yeah, food for yeah. the animals, right? Yeah. So we have a one sign that deals with what about animals that have special diets? You know, like koalas today will only, for the most part, eat eucalyptus leaves. What about like vampire bats or, or, or anteaters? Well, even anteaters in zoos, they'll eat fruit and other soft things like that without, they don't have to survive off of ants. We just think of them that way. Koalas are, 
it's almost by choice that they only eat the eucalyptus. They can digest other things, but eucalyptus is almost like a drug to them. That's why they sleep 20 to 24 hours, 20 out of 24 hours a day, which that's one of my favorite animals. So I'm not trying to be mean to them, but that's what they do. And so just we deal with a lot of those things. Then as far as carnivores go, we're not even sure if any of the animals were carnivores at that time, the ones that were on the ark. So in Genesis 129, God tells Adam that, and Eve that the animals are going to eat vegetation. And he names certain, the, the land animals are going to eat. They're going to eat vegetation. Then he says the same thing to Adam and Eve, and you're going to eat vegetation. It's not until after the flood that people are given permission to eat meat in Genesis 9.3, which is one of my favorite verses. I'm very thankful for that one. But it seems as if, you know, when the Bible says all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth in Genesis 6, and when we look at the fossil record, we see these creatures that are buried in the flood layers. That's how we interpret so many of those rock layers are laid down by the flood. There's creatures that have eaten other creatures. The, the fossils are in the belly of the other creature. So it does seem like some of them were carnivorous at that time, but it doesn't mean that the ones that were sent to Noah were kind of carnivorous. And what I mean by that is there was several decades ago, there was a lion called Little Tyke, the lion that never ate meat. And it was fully grown. It, it just didn't eat meat. So some of these creatures don't have to eat meat, but it is now it's instinctive for them to do that. So it could be that prior to the flood, not all of them had gone carnivorous yet. So maybe tyrannosaurs were largely carnivorous or scavengers, but maybe some of the one, the two that God sent Noah were not yet. So that that's one possibility. The other possibility is if they were carnivorous, there's ways to bring uh, meat that has been preserved. I, I joked about it before. I don't think they did this, but they could have put the carnivorous ones right underneath the rabbit and mouse cages, and they would have been fully stocked all the time. But, <laughs> I don't, for the record, I don't think that's what they really did. That's my, that's my dark sense of humor, I guess, coming through. <laughs> so you mentioned Tyrannosaurus. Do you mean the dinosaur? Yeah. Okay. What would the Creation Museum say about that? Would they say they went extinct after the flood or, or what's the stance on that? Yeah. So in Genesis 1 on day 6, it tells us that God made the land animals, which is the same day that God made man and woman. Well, dinosaurs are land animals. So our, our starting point is that they were made on the same day as man and woman. So they would have been alive at the same time during Adam's lifetime. And as long as they were still alive at the time the flood started, they, you would have had to have two of each kind of dinosaur on board the ark. And since we find their fossils in layers that we believe were laid down by the flood, we would assume that they were alive when the flood started. So therefore two of each kind had to be on board the ark. And for whatever reason, like a lot of animals after the flood, they didn't thrive very well. And eventually, as, as far as we know, went extinct, but dinosaurs aren't the only animals that have gone, that have gone extinct. About half of the mammals that we've ever identified are gone. One quarter of the birds are extinct and all of the synapses, that's a different group of animals that are, they call them like mammal, like reptiles or reptile, like mammals. Some people confuse them with dinosaurs, but all, as far as I know, all of those are gone as well. So a lot of animals have gone extinct and since the time of the flood. So yeah, we would say dinosaurs were required on the ark. And spoiler alert for those guests who go to the ark, you're going to see a few dinosaurs represented on there that we have them at the Creation Museum as well. Uh, and it's interesting to me that the one creature, when you read Job chapter 40, uh, beginning at verse 15, the one creature that seems to fit a description of a dinosaur really well, like the, the sauropod dinosaur, the long neck, long tail dinosaur, um, 
it says there, God said, look now at the behemoth, which I made along with you. It's almost like God is reminding us that he made this creature the same day he made man. And as a, someday people are going to come along who are going to reject that and deny that and say, no, they were long, a long, long time ago. And no, I, we think there's plenty of evidence to say, no, they were here when man was. And uh, even after the flood, they were still alive and there's evidence of that as well. Wow. That's amazing. So. Let's pivot a little bit more, just being respectful of your time, to the answers in Genesis. Is the primary purpose of answers in Genesis, is it, is it really to encourage believers, kind of help them stand on what they believe, or is it actually to reach non-Christians? Uh, it's actually both. So we have our, our mission statement has lines for both there to, to, to equip the church to be able to defend their faith and to share the gospel with unbelievers. So when we... When we open the Creation Museum, the vast majority of the people coming through are going to be, you know, Christians, largely conservative evangelical Christians who are, who already agree with us for the most part. But when we opened the Ark, we had an entirely different demographic. Now we're getting, I've heard as many as 30 to 35% of people coming through are unchurched and you're getting a million people a year. So you're thinking 300,000 unchurched a year coming through there, which is Amazing. That's fantastic. And a lot of them are now going to the Creation Museum too. And so we have an opportunity to share the gospel with so many people. And, and we've had testimonies of people who have given their lives to the Lord while they're going through the ark, which, you know, praise God for that. That's, that's why we do it. Ultimately, that's what we want. But of course, we want to help equip the church as well. So our, yeah, I guess our mission is twofold in that regarding the believer and unbeliever. Awesome. As we kind of wrap it up, I do have one kind of personal question, and I don't know if this is outside of your scope. I know it's answers in Genesis, but this might be more answers in Exodus. Is there any kind of archaeological evidence for the Red Sea crossing? And, you know, there's so many people that take issue with, oh, there's, you know, no way that they could have crossed this, and there's no no chariots, et cetera, et cetera. Are there any answers for Exodus too or not? I think that there are. We, as a ministry, that's not really our focus, but we do sell a, a DVD series of DVDs by uh, Tim Mahoney, I think his name is, who does the Patterns of Evidence DVDs. And the third and fourth episodes in that series have to do with the Red Sea crossing. And he compares the kind of the two different approaches by, from people who actually believe there was an exodus. Of course, you've got some skeptics and some liberal theologians who kind of poo-poo the whole idea. But of the people who actually believe there was an exodus, some of them think that the Red Sea was not the the Red Sea. It was the Sea of Reeds, which interesting. That is kind of what the Hebrew means. Yam Suf is Sea of Reeds. The question is, is that what the Red Sea was called at that time or not? So you can go back and forth on that one. So some think that it was a body of water closer to Egypt. And then there's other ones who think it was what I think it's called the Gulf of Aqaba, which is the northeastern arm of the Red Sea on the, the east side of the Sinai Peninsula. And so you've got those two competing models, and in his third and fourth DVDs, he, he, I think he does a pretty good job explaining the two views. And it had, it had, there's a lot of implications as far as the wilderness wanderings go and all sorts of things that, that come out of that. Um, I don't know that we take an official view as a ministry about it. I would encourage people to check those out and see the, you know, the arguments for and against each position for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. We've actually had Tim Mahoney on the show before too. He's a he's okay. really knowledgeable and really interesting person as well. So well, he's got um, a great first name, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> can't go wrong with that. Right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, hey, how can listeners learn more about Answers in Genesis? 
the Ark Encounter, kind of find out the hours and just kind of information, kind of planning a visit. And then how can people connect with you personally and find some of your, your books as well? Okay. Yeah, great. We've got so we've got a large website with, with thousands and thousands of articles, answersingenesis.org. And then for the Ark Encounter, it's just arkencounter.com. And find out the hours and different ticketing prices, also where to stay in the area, all sorts of things to help you with your visit. Creationmuseum.com as well, or .org, I should say, creation.org. And uh, similar to the Ark Encounter website, we'll give you all the details you need to know. For my own resources, a lot of them are going to be available through Answers in Genesis, but I've got some other ones that are not, so they can they can find my work at Risen Ministries, which is, the website is risenmin, just risenmin.org, and it'll have all, all my books and my blog and other things as well. So it's named because of the resurrection. That's my favorite topic. I love talking about creation and evolution, age of the earth, but I mean, I like doing that a lot, but I love talking about the resurrection. That's the victory. That's, that's our hope. And knowing that our savior not only died in our place and died for my sin, so they can be wiped away. He also conquered death and said, someday this is going to be you as well. And I can't wait. So first Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. I can't wait for death to die. It's going to be an awesome day. Well, what a, what a great conclusion. We can't wait for the end to be no more. So amen. What a blessing to have you on the show, Dr. Tim. It's an honor to have you today. Thanks so much for having me. It was great talking to you guys, and thanks for the opportunity. God bless you.